Last week we saw that Stephen had been seized and been hauled in front of the Sanhedrin to give a defense for uh, the things that he was teaching. And so we come now to Stephen's speech that he gives in his defense. Acts chapter 7 beginning with verse 1. Please remember that this is the word of God. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession, and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we have read your word, which is living and active, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, I pray that it would pierce even into the deepest parts of our souls, dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit, that it would uh, cause us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to commit ourselves to Him, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Father, we cannot produce this of ourselves. We need your Spirit. May He be our teacher this morning. We ask in His name. Amen. Before I came to Westminster, I served for nine years as the associate pastor at New Covenant Presbyterian Church in Aiken, South Carolina. And I, uh, I arrived, my wife and I uh, arrived there a few years after they had built, finished building uh, their present facilities. And the church uh, had a good start. They had a, actually a glorious start in the late 1980s. The church began when 250 people left the local uh, PCUSA church. And they left because they, as a congregation, believed in the inerrancy of the scriptures. But the denomination did not. And so the denomination was making things difficult on them, uh, making their existence as a congregation uh, to be a struggle. And uh, the PCA had been formed, and so they left the PCUSA to come into the PCA. Uh, The PCUSA owns the property. So when they left as a congregation, almost entirely as a congregation, they could not take their property with them. They left it behind. And so they began to meet in a local high school. 
Um, the PCA, however, because of the uh, experience that the PCA fathers had when they started our denomination, in our bylaws, the local church owns the land, so Westminster owns its own property. The denomination does not own it. But getting back to my story, uh, they met in a local high school for the first years while they built their facilities. And there are many stories that I heard uh, of how God's um, providence cared for that congregation in their early years. And I heard many testimonies of that congregation's faithfulness and of God's miraculous blessing as he carried the church from infancy on into uh, being a, uh, a strong, solid church. But interestingly enough, when I had arrived at New Covenant, those stories of the congregation's faithfulness all seemed to be in the past. They had these stories of what God had done early in the church's life, but now that they had finished building their facilities, those stories of God's faithfulness and of their stepping out in faith had become less and less. They'd settled into the typical uh, day-to-day mundane of church life. And so when I had arrived, the church was wondering what their direction would be and what they should be doing as a church. They were also wondering where all the excitement, all the enthusiasm, and all the vibrancy had gone. Now that they had finished their building, they were wondering, well, now what's God calling us to do? I tell this story because this is a typical progression, or should I say, regression. It happens to most every church. A strong living faith falls backward into a religious formalism. It even happens to entire denominations. We all know of denominations, of strong Bible-believing denominations that had a good start, that have fallen off into formalism, eventually into liberalism. It even happens to individuals. We all know of individuals who uh, started strong in the Christian life. They were willing, willing to give up anything. They were willing to do. They were willing to risk everything simply because they loved Jesus Christ. And their life was marked by all these, these big lifestyle changes early on in the Christian life as they repented of their sins. But as they grew older, as they grew maturer in the Christian life, they settled down into their church-centered routines. And the excitement, the enthusiasm, the vibrancy of their faith began to wane. And their Christian life became little more than going through the emotions. Does it sound familiar? This is what happened to the entire Hebrew religion. 
or nearly the entire Hebrew religion. They started out well. God had called Abraham out of paganism. He was living over in Ur of the Chaldees, over in Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq. He was worshipping a false god. God called Abraham. He dropped his paganism and he followed God's call. Abraham believed God and followed Him. In fact, Abraham believed God and therefore his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had his faults, but he in his heart trusted God. But as the nation of Israel progressed through the centuries, they actually regressed in their faith. The emphasis on Abraham's faith was exchanged. Uh, It was exchanged for um, for uh, the the importance of being Abraham's descendant. Whereas Abraham placed all his faith, or, or the emphasis of his faith in God, his descendants placed their faith in the fact that they were Abraham's descendants. The emphasis on believing God's promises that He would give them a land was exchanged for a nationalistic pride. The emphasis on being faithful to God was replaced by religious uh, rituals. They were their faith in God was replaced by being faithful to religious um, rituals and um, and practices. And so throughout Israel's history, we find God calling His people back. Back to Himself. Back to faith. Away from empty religious practice. And to a living uh, faith in Him. Listen to one of these such calls. You can hear, if I might put it in these uh, in humanistic terms, or human terms, you can hear the exasperation in God's voice. This is from Isaiah chapter 1. God says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fatted, fatted animals. I have no pleasure um, in the blood of bulls and of lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons, your Sabbaths, your convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my face from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. 
And here he is encouraging them, come back to me. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. Once she was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. Now only murderers dwell in her. See, they had replaced their faith by a ritualism that did not require faith. And as you can see, God was not happy. And this is what Stephen is addressing here in his speech as he is speaking before the religious establishment. He was accused of speaking against the temple. He was accused against speaking against the law of Moses. In fact, you see the accusation uh, in last week's text, verses 13 and 14 of Acts chapter 6. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So that's the accusation. And so Stephen addresses this first accusation of speaking against the temple by saying that the temple is not all important. It's not all important because God doesn't live in a temple made by human hands. In fact, and this is, um, this is Stephen's point here as we look at the text. In fact, God first spoke to Abraham... Not inside the temple. Not even inside Palestine. Abraham was living in Mesopotamia. Verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he even lived in Haran. And so when God left in obedience to God's command... He didn't go straight to Palestine. He went first to Haran. And he lived there in Haran until his father died. And so, Abraham did not place an all-important... He didn't place all his importance in living in Palestine. He stayed in Haran until God then moved him. We see in verse 4. And even after Abraham finally made it to Palestine, he did not own any land. Stephen says he didn't, he didn't even own a foot's length of land in the land of Palestine. And furthermore, Abraham, once he got there, didn't always stay in Palestine. We have this infamous move down to Egypt. And then he came back a little later. And then Abraham's descendants did not stay in Palestine. uh, For they left and they were slaves for 400 years in the land of Egypt. Uh, He says here in uh, verses 6 and following. Yet... 
Where was God during all this time? During all this time that Abraham was not inside Palestine. During all this time that his people were in slavery down in Egypt. Where was God? Was he up in in Palestine? Was he localized? Was he centered only in in that one locality? No. God was in Mesopotamia when he spoke to to Abraham. He was in Haran when he called Abraham to leave and go to Palestine. He was with uh, Abraham when, when Abraham went down to Egypt. He was with his people when they were in slavery for 400 years. In other words, Stephen's point is that the temple is not the end all and be all that the religious leaders were making it out to be. If the temple had been so all-fired important, then God would have made sure that Abraham would have built the temple, or his descendants would have built the temple, and he would have kept them in the land of Palestine. And so, the implication of what Stephen is saying is that it does not take a temple with all its religious trappings for God to have a relationship with His people. And this was an important point for Stephen to make because he perceived that the, the, the rituals of the temple, rather than helping the people of Jerusalem come closer to God, was actually hindering their relationship with Him. That the temple was preventing God's people from worshiping Jesus Christ. So let me ask you. How is your worship throughout the week? Do you only feel close to God on Sunday morning? How do you practice your your faith through the week? You know, Sunday is the culmination of your worship through the week. And it's also the beginning, a a, a place of of re-renewal, or renewal, so that we can worship God faithfully throughout the upcoming week. In other words, Sunday is the end of our week and the beginning of our week in regard to worship. It's the highlight, but it is never, ever, nor has it ever been intended to be the only time that God's people worship. So how is your worship during the week? How you worship during the week helps you to worship better on Sunday. And how you worship on Sunday will help you better worship through the week. I don't want you to miss Stephen's subtle yet powerful point in verse 5 as we are looking here at the life of Abraham. In verse 5, Stephen says, Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but God promised to give it to him as a possession, and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. What, What Stephen is saying here is not only is the temple and its ritualistic worship 
um, not the end-all, be-all for having a relationship with God. But he's also saying that there is no place on earth that can serve as the true place for worship. Abraham never owned any land in Palestine. Even when he lived there, he never owned any land. Remember that he even had to buy some land to bury his wife when Sarah died. Stephen says that Abraham, as he says here in verse 5, did not even own a foot's length of land. The book of Hebrews, in fact I made sure I included in your part of the responsive reading, says that Abraham lived like a stranger in a foreign country. Well that raises a question. Was God unfaithful to his promises? Because God promised Abraham land. But Abraham never even owned a square foot of it. How are we to think about this? What's happening is Abraham was a man of faith. And because he was a man of faith, he knew that God's promises are not merely or simply materialistic in nature. He looked beyond the physical land. He looked to a heavenly city whose foundations or with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham did not concern himself with physical localities or rituals. Rather, he looked to God. He believed God's promises. He obeyed God's voice. That was the content of Abraham's faith. And the Jews in Stephen's day had built this elaborate elaborate temple worship with this elaborate system of worship. But it was entirely devoid of faith. Again, I must press some questions to you. Where is the content of your worship? What I mean by this is where are the chief concerns in your life? Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what he meant by that is our treasure should be up in heaven. And that our hearts will then go where our treasure is. Our chief concern should be up in heaven where our Savior is so that our heart will follow. Our heart, our desires, always follow our treasure. So, where are your chief concerns? Are your chief concerns your house? your finances, your family, your job, your hobbies, your toys. We could go on and on. What are your chief concerns here in this life? You know, all these things, house, finances, family, hobbies, toys, job, all these things are temporary You belong to Jesus Christ. You are a citizen of heaven right now. Your home is in heaven. Your riches are in heaven. Your family is in heaven. Why? Because your Savior 
is in heaven. And your inheritance, just like Abraham's inheritance, is entirely and only in heaven. And Jesus is there eagerly awaiting for His elect to come in. In fact, there is a great banquet that He is eager to throw in your honor. Why is it when our Savior is in heaven and He is waiting for us with blessings that are too wonderful to be described, Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has promised for those who love Him. Why is it that we can become so concerned with the things here on earth? The Apostle Paul, rather, tells us our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 At the risk of being redundant, I must ask you again, where is your treasure? If churches... If entire denominations and even God's people have routinely fallen into the trap of religious formalism, which quickly devolves into dead devotion, how can we expect to avoid it? This is an important question because ritualism and Christ are opposed to each other, just as light is opposed to darkness. Ritualism supplants, replaces, is opposed to Jesus Christ. And Abraham is instructive to us here when we ask the question, how can we avoid it? Paul says of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, And he and Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, nor that righteousness might be credited to them. In other words, Abraham knew that faith was far more important than circumcision. And it was Abraham's faith that connected him to God. It was not his religious performance. It was not the rite of circumcision. It was his faith. And then God used his faith to transfer to Abraham God's righteousness so that he could stand justified before God. And the same is true today. When we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, what He did 2,000 years ago on the cross, when we trust in Him, God transfers us to us Christ's righteousness. But faith didn't stop there for Abraham. He simply didn't receive His righteousness and stop believing. Rather, he lived daily by faith. He trusted God every day. And even when his faith weakened, Even 
when he was uh, more slackardly in his faith, it was his faith that drove him back to God. The antidote to ritualism is a living faith. So, how can we feed our faith so that it will grow? How can we keep our faith living and active? First of all, we need to feed our faith the right things. Romans chapter 10 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Unfortunately, we not only starve our faith by not reading the word of God, but unfortunately we, we feed it um, with unhealthy junk food of materialism and worldliness. Secondly, we feed our faith by putting it into practice. James says, don't be a hearer only, but be a doer of God's word. And then thirdly and finally, in order to have a living faith, we practice repentance. I think this aspect of having of living a repentant lifestyle is the most overlooked aspect of growth in the Christian life. That was the problem with the religious leaders that Stephen was addressing. In fact, that's why he says to them at the conclusion of his speech, over in uh, verse 53, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. They were stiff-necked. They were unwilling to repent. And it is universally true that people would rather jump through a hundred hoops of religious formalism than to practice one act of repentance. Why is that? Repentance requires faith. Religious ritualism, well, you can do that without faith. Repentance requires humility. Jumping through the hoops of religious performance builds pride. Repentance means sadness before God. Religious performance means acclaim before people. Therein lies the problem. So, how often do you repent of your sins? How deeply do you repent of your sins? How real is your repentance? You have nothing to be scared of when it comes to repentance. God so loved sinners that He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus so loved sinners that He left His place in heaven and came here to earth not only to seek sinners but to die for sinners. Do you believe He died for you? If you do, then you also must believe that you are a sinner and that you repent of your sins when you come to Him for forgiveness. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we would be prideful to think that we could escape the religious formalism and ritualism that has ensnared your people throughout the centuries. And so, God, we come in humility. We come in repentance. 
we come bowing our heart, our knee, our heads before Jesus. And we cry out, have mercy upon us, O God, for we are sinners. Father, I pray that you would give us a living faith in our, in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. One that uh, is not content to go through the motions, but rather is willing to step out uh, and pursue those things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. God, I ask that you would make us a faith-filled congregation. And God, I ask that you would help us to daily, continually through the day, to enter through that narrow gate of faith and repentance. Because on the other side, we need our Lord Jesus, and he leads us to life. We pray in his name. Amen.